...reflective or evanescent to be useful in historical analysis. But Ellis's clarifying remarks about the naughtiness of the question, what is fashion, get to the core of this book's themes. Speaking at FIT, Ellis hoped to open her audience's eyes to the material world at large and to highlight the creative possibilities inherent in all aspects of design, production, marketing, and merchandising. She understood the fertile fields that waited to be plowed, the benefits of cross-fertilization, and the wonderful fruit that could be borne by expansive thinking and careful looking. The students, teacher practitioners, and others who may have listened to Ellis speak at FIT became the future and current producers of fashion. Many probably aspired to join New York's thriving creative economy, to become members of the creative classes who generate the sketches, color palettes, style forecasts, fabric combinations, and design innovations used by manufacturers to sew or knit apparel for American consumers and, increasingly, for global markets. We may never know if anyone who heard What is Fashion graduated from FIT to begin the long journey to design celebrity, following in the footsteps of sensational 7th Avenue success stories such as Ralph Lauren and Donna Karen. Most students listening to Ellis as she lectured at FIT, however, probably found entry-level jobs behind the scenes in the apparel, beauty, design, publishing, and retailing industries. In these positions, few would leave their personal imprint on the look and feel of American style, but collectively they would help to shape and reshape fashion through their everyday duties and assignments in advertising agencies, apparel companies, accessories and fragrance licensing, beauty salons, newspaper and publishing houses, public relations firms, and television studios. With this situation in mind, Ellis sought to encourage and inspire creativity among the rank and file, who would soon help the gears of the fashion business to mesh. As a highly successful creative professional, Ellis took her cues from anywhere in the culture where ideas, values, emotions, and meanings percolated. She reminded students that it was important not to lose sight of the big picture, eschewing the Marxist and postmodern analyses of fashion that dominated academic discourse at the time, Ellis spoke at a moment when the theories of French semiotician Roland Barthes, who had interrogated the fashion system as an expression of bourgeois values generated and sustained by the media, enjoyed wide currency in American universities. Put simply, Barthes had argued that the mass media constructed certain visual priorities as truth, advancing representations that furthered the bourgeoisie's social position, The media helped invent bourgeois tastes and to define them as tradition, even though these tropes had no foundation in nature and few precedents in history. In Barthes' interpretation, which was ideologically sympathetic to the Marxist belief in the irreconcilable differences between capital and labor, everything was about the struggle for power. In contrast, Ellis took a more pragmatic and far less sinister position on fashion, its meaning, and its production. 
Her straightforward understanding has ramifications for this historical study of how fashion has been created. As a former fashion editor, Ellis certainly understood the persuasive power of the mass media, acknowledging the emotive sway that photographs of sexy young models in glamorous settings could have on human desire and shoppers' motivations. Visual seduction was the stock-in-trade of fashion photography, verbal enticement the forte of fashion editors. But Ellis knew that the media hype was only part of the story, and that something more important needed to be emphasized in her talk that day at FIT. Ellis saw fashion as something other than a media extravaganza that celebrated big-name designers, anorexic supermodels, and trendy wardrobes in Vogue or Esquire. For her, fashion reached beyond apparel, clothing, and dress.